Great. Well, it's been a few weeks. It's been a few weeks since we've been teaching about Moses. A couple weeks ago, we had that one Sunday, that one celebration Sunday. That was, uh, that was pretty unique, pretty fun, pretty special. Hope you enjoyed that online. Last week, we had the gift, nay, the privilege of listening to our very own Laura Campbell. And that was a, that was a fun week last week. Thank you, Laura, for, for, for that. Uh, today we're back to our, our Moses series, and we're in the process of studying the first 16 chapters of the book of Exodus. So we're basically looking at the, the Hebrew people going from slavery, from a multi-generational evil slavery, uh, being rescued and delivered by God uh, and leaving Egypt. So that's kind of the part of the, the story that we're covering. According to the ancient uh, Egyptian historian Manetho, writing in about 300 BC, he says it's during the reign of Deutimos in Egypt's 13th dynasty that God, singular, God smote Egypt. God smote the Egyptians. So, so far in our study, just to catch us all up to speed, since it's been a few weeks, we've looked at the birth of Moses, his exile in Midian, and then we've looked at the first nine plagues over the last couple of weeks. And now we're getting to the tenth plague. And the, there's about three chapters connected to the tenth plague. So there's lots to say about this moment. But this is, the, this is that great deliverance moment. So we're going to dive right in. If you have your Bibles, I'm in Exodus chapter 11. And I'm going to start reading in verse 1. In verse 1. It's about the tenth plague. Yahweh said to Moses, or the Lord said to Moses, Yahweh said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you out of here. Now announce to the people that both men and women should ask their neighbors for silver and gold items. Yahweh gave the people favor with the Egyptians. In addition, Moses himself was very highly regarded in the land of Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and the people. Just a quick reminder, three weeks ago, in case you weren't here three weeks ago, we talked about the Egyptian eyewitness, the guy who was living and writing during the 13th dynasty, and we talked about why we know that that's when he was living and writing. His name was Ipur, and he writes about these events and the exodus uh, through, uh, you know, from, from the Egyptian point of view as an Egyptian wise man, and he writes about this same moment here. Just wanted to remind you, he says that the slave takes what he finds. What belongs to the palace has been stripped. Gold, lapis lazuli, silver, and turquoise are strung on the necks of female slaves. You know, the slaves are taking the, the silver, the gold. See how the poor of the land have become rich whilst the man of property is a pauper. Just a reminder, a pure, the Egyptians are writing about this same event. Anyways, back to the Bible, verse 4. So Moses said, and there he is in the presence of Pharaoh. He says, this is what Yahweh says. About midnight... I will go throughout Egypt, and every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn of the servant girls, servant girl who is at the grindstones, as well as every firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a great cry of anguish through all the land of Egypt, such as never was before or ever will be again." Again, Epua writes about this, and, and he said, Woe is me. He says, Woe is me for the grief of the time. He who buries his brother in the ground is everywhere. Wailing is throughout the land, mingled with lamentations. Verse 7. 
But against all the Israelites, whether people or animals, not even a dog will snarl. So that you may know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come down to me and bow before me saying, get out. And you and all the people who follow you, after that, I will get out. And, and he went out from Pharaoh's presence fiercely angry. This is Moses. Now, I'm not going to have time to read the next couple chapters, although that might be better, actually, <laughs> if, I, if I just uh, stick with the Bible and kept reading it. But I want to give you a flavor of how it continues to unfold in chapters 12 and 13. So I'm going to kind of skip through, uh, keep skipping ahead through chapter 12 and 13 so that you can keep seeing this, this story unfold. And basically what's going to be happening here is uh, in the next two chapters, we're going to be hearing how God wants them to celebrate and remember. How to celebrate and remember this moment of Passover when, when, when God is going to strike every firstborn of Egypt and, and spare, uh, spare his own people. How God's going to tell them about the lamb and the importance of this lamb that, that needs to be slain. And, and its blood needs to be put over the doorposts of their, their homes. No blood, no salvation. And this is, this is, a, this is going to take two chapters to, to lay this out. We, we read things like, skipping down to chapter 12, verse 5. It says, you must, speaking about how to celebrate Passover, you must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. And you may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. Skipping down to verse 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Skipping down to verse 24. Keep this command permanently as a statute for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you are to observe this ceremony. When, you, when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? You were to reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and spared our homes. So the people knelt low and worshipped. Skipping to verse 29. Now at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon. And every firstborn of the livestock. During the night, Pharaoh got up. He, along with all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt because there wasn't a house without someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, Get out immediately from among my people, both you and the Israelites, and go worship the Lord as you have said. Take even your flocks and your herds, as you have asked, as you asked, and leave. And also bless me. Skipping down to verse 40. The time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. 
at the end of 430 years, on that same day, all the Lord's military divisions went out from the land of Egypt. Skipping down to chapter 13, verse 14. In the future, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, by the strength of his hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of humans and the firstborn of livestock. That's a flavor of this incredible, powerful moment. The moment that decimated Egypt and yet saw freedom come to, to God's people. Um, just a fun moment of archaeology tidbits for you before we before we keep going uh avaris as we've talked about uh is the the main city that's the that's the city where joseph's family moved to at the very beginning jacob moved there and you know reuben simeon levi asher all those guys moved to moved to avaris the city of avaris which is later renamed ramses that's going to be in, in 200 years after ramses is born and and becomes pharaoh uh it's going to be renamed to, to ramses but you you have this city which was originally just he but then as I've talked about it became a mixed city where where you had a northern palace for the Egyptians in Avaris so you had a significant Egyptian population there this is important I'm not just just saying this and a significant Egyptian population there as well as a significant Hebrew population so we're in Avaris and you can you can see what we find in the archaeology there is you find these death pits these death pits where where there, there's these bodies that are quickly buried obviously from a plague an instant plague and there, there were so many people that died all at once at the same moment they're just putting them in these in these pits and and the bible describes this this night where they're burying their dead and they're, they're dealing with their dead instantly that are um whilst the whilst god's people are walking out there, there's this, this quick um death pits thing which we see in in avaras in, in the excavation work okay Hold that thought. Sorry about the imagery, but hold on to it. Uh, the, the next thing I want you to see is um, this is the city of Pithom and where it's located. And so you see, uh, you see some maps here. So Pithom, there's the, kind of the reconstruction of it. It's near Ramses, which was Avaris. The reason why I'm showing you this is because the Bible talks about two cities that they were leaving from, Pithom and Ramses. So this is the other one, Avaris and, and Pithom. Um, but you can also see in the map, which is in the upper right-hand corner, all those yellow dots. The yellow dots are, are other cities that we know are Hebrew slave cities that just haven't been excavated yet. So there, there, but there's so many of them. Just as the Bible describes, the people had spread out throughout the, the, the delta here, the land of Goshen, and then they ended up spreading out all through the land of Egypt. But there's, those are known locations where we know the Hebrew slaves were living at the time. The next one I want you to see is a, is a town, uh, is a slave city called Cahun. And Cahun is down into the south. This is kind of spreading out. And this was an intentionally built slave city. So it, it didn't start off as a, a free city and then become a slave city. It was, it was built, it was contained a long ways from a water source as if they really cared if these people had much water. But this was an entirely a Hebrew, a slave city uh, place called Cahun. Now, the interesting facts, two of them, I think they're interesting. Maybe half of you will as well. Um, Cahun here, okay? It is just a Hebrew slave city. It is not a mixed city. It does not have Egyptians living in this, in this city, unlike Avaris. 
No death pits in Cahum. None. And that makes sense, right? Because only the Egyptian firstborn are dying. So where, where you find places and locations that only have Hebrews, you don't see these death pits. You only see them in places like Avaris where there is Hebrews as well. Okay? That's, that's archaeology. That's information from the ground, from the sand. The other thing I want you to see here is, um, according to archaeology, all these cities were completely abandoned at once near the end of the 13th dynasty. All of those cities, all those yellow dots you remember, Pithom, uh, Avaris, Cahun, all, all these places were just walked out of. And when, you, when they excavated Cahun, it, it's, it's weird because things were just left as is, as if just in one night they just got up and left. They took their clothes, but they didn't even take all their valuables. They didn't take sewing needles, a lot of sewing needles, left, and that was valuable. Uh, good thing when they were wandering, their clothes didn't wear out, right, says the Bible. Um, Fun fact, uh, but, but they just walked, they took their clothes and, and they left things behind. They left food out, they left pots and, and all this kind of stuff. The, the guy who investigated this, Professor A.R. David, in his book, The Pyramid Builders of Ancient Egypt, he, he writes how they couldn't have just died from a plague or been relocated to another slave city to, to work on a new building project because, because there's no dead body burial things there that, of indicating any sort of plague and also they left their work equipment they didn't bring their tools with them they just left their slave tools and walked out all at once the whole city at one time and you know it's at one time because everything was left just as it was on the night they walked out so you you see this archaeology going on just at the same time the bible describes as and and you're you're now as we're excavating things more and more excavating them we're seeing more and more how it just lines up exactly with what the, the Bible says. I, I, I love that. I love how the Bible, the historians, the, the dirt in the ground, they're all telling us that this story is true. It's not just an amazing story, an encouraging story, an inspiring story, but it's a true story that really did happen, and the evidences are, are right there. This is that moment in time where God genuinely reveals his power and his ability to distinguish between his people and those who are under his judgment. His power to judge and his power to save at the same moment. Now he gave, in this moment, Hebrews, uh, very specific instructions. And if they believed him, and if they obeyed him, if they kept his word by, by doing what he told them to do, by sacrificing a lamb, and by putting its blood around the door of, of their homes, then they would be saved. They would be saved. And what we discover in the New Testament is that this really did happen. It was one of the most extraordinary events in the history of the world. But actually, what happens here was only a shadow of the amazing rescue that was going to happen when it came to Jesus. This was a small picture although significant for them, of being rescued from slavery while God judged the Egyptians, of what is going to happen in the future with Jesus in his great rescuing of us out of slavery on the same day. Remember, what Jesus does on the cross is on this same day, dealing with the Passover. Paul does not want us to miss this. And so he writes this in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
Don't miss it. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that we've been celebrating for the last 1,500 years, the, the Passover lamb. John the Baptist, remember John the Baptist, when he, when he realizes Jesus is the promised Messiah, he points to Jesus, the Passover lamb, and, he's, and he says, he says, look or behold, the, uh, what does he say? Behold, the lamb of God. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Bible is pointing to Jesus as this Passover lamb. And, and we see that not only is Jesus sacrificed at the same day, he fulfills all of the, it seems, pernickety details of what the Passover lamb needed to go through. For instance, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, we see that you had to identify this lamb on the 10th day of the month to be sacrificed on the 14th day of the month. And this lamb had to be unblemished. It couldn't have any flaw or defect. Well, we learn in the New Testament that on the 10th day of the month, Jesus goes to the temple. And he spends the next day, day after day after day, the 10th, the 11th, the 12th, in front of people being inspected. And they are grilling him. They are trying to trap him with questions. They are trying to see if there's flaws in him. They're, they're sending different groups of crowds around him to try and compromise his integrity, see if he'll compromise his integrity, see if there's any flaw in Jesus during these five days between the 10th and the 14th. And finally, this, this lamb is inspected by Pilate, the, the governor of the whole land. And, and the, what does Pilate say when he inspects Jesus? He says, I see no fault in him. Those five days of inspection, Jesus, before the people, during the exact same days, God's people are to have the lamb, to be, to be making sure that it has no blemish and preparation for its sacrifice, the exact same days. According to Josephus, who writes about Jerusalem during these years, he says 250,000 Passover lambs are slain. 250,000 Passover lambs are slain in Jerusalem. And with so many of them, they would start preparing the lamb at 9 in the morning to be sacrificed at 3 in the evening. And, and, and that's exactly, not only the same day that Jesus is going through this, the exact same hours at 9 in the morning, Jesus is hung on the cross, nailed to the cross. And at 3 in the afternoon, he breathes his last. Not only is Jesus fulfilling them to the day, but to the hour. You have these, these seemingly, you know, just high detail what's the point laws in the Old Testament and we discovered there is a point and because it's all about pointing to exactly what Jesus is going to do one of the most significant moments in the history of the world where by his blood he purchased men from God from every tongue and tribe and people and nation God gives these precise things these precise these precise commands in the Old Testament and we see that they're fulfilled in Jesus. God warned his people in the Old Testament that judgment was coming. He warned the Egyptians. He told Pharaoh through Moses that judgment was coming. Who responded? Not Pharaoh, not the Egyptians, but it seems like all God's people responded. Now, today, God has warned the world that he is going to judge the world. That we're all going to have to stand before, every one of us is going to stand before God and give account of our lives. The books are going to be opened. And at that moment, you're either going to receive judgment like what the Egyptians received. Or you're going to receive grace via Jesus, the Passover lamb who was slain. Now, this is important to hear. 
the judgment of God on that day, and we get confused, even the best of Christians gets confused in this, is not going to be based on your behavior, bad or good. It's, it's not going to be based on your behavior. It's not going to be based on your background. It's not going to be based on your sin or, or your sexuality. It's not going to be based on the sacrifices you made for Jesus. It's not going to be. It's not going to be based on like how how resolved you were during difficult times. How res resolute you were to not give up and believing in Jesus. How how strongly you stood against temptation. On that day, none of that matters. Now it does matter for other reasons, and we're not talking about that right now. We're talking about the day where we're standing before God. There is only one question on that day. Has the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain, is it covering you or is it not? That's the only thing that matters. The Galatians, the Galatians, when they became Christians, they, they were excited and they, they were excited about Jesus and his forgiveness. But after some years, they started to, they started to get it twisted and they think, well, maybe their goodness now is part of why they're still a Christian. But, but believers, you can't twist that gospel. You, you, you can't. It's Jesus only. It's his blood only. And yes, we, we love Jesus and we want to walk and obey in his commands. But when it comes to our salvation, when we stand before God, it is only is there blood. You could have these Hebrew people who were evil. And maybe, maybe they had idols in their home. And maybe they, they were mean to their neighbors and they called them names like punk and, and things like that uh, you know they, they could have been awful people but if the blood if they had obeyed god and put the blood over their door in the old testament they were going to be saved anyone any background any issues can be saved if you give your life to jesus and the question is have you responded to what god has said have you responded to Jesus? Have you believed in him and put your hope in him? Trusting him, trusting in his blood shed on the cross. The good news is, judgment is coming, but. Judgment is coming, but Jesus has provided the ultimate Passover lamb. And he didn't want you to miss it. So he wrote this big, he made sure it was written down many chapters in the Old Testament. How, how big of a deal the Passover lamb was. And then he showed Jesus and how he fulfilled that. It's like you get two epic stories connected to the great significance of what Jesus has come. Jesus has come to rescue you from your slavery to sin and death. And he's come to save you from the delusion that you're good enough. And that you don't need much of a savior. He's come to save you from both of those. If you believe in Jesus... And let his blood purchase you. Challenge today is this. And actually, when I wrote this challenge, I thought I was going to change it. I forgot to do that. So this is kind of awkward, but I'm going to read it anyways. The challenge to believe and celebrate what Jesus did by dying for you on the cross by having lamb this week. Vegans are like, yes. Yuck. Yuck. By having lamb this week and thanking Jesus for his death so that you could live. Now, 
I kind of thought I, I was just kind of a humorous placeholder, actually, <laughs> when it came to, came, came to challenges. But you know what? Uh, the Jewish people, they, they're commanded to have lamb and celebrate it uh, because of the connection, spiritual connection. I, I'm, not, I'm not commanding you to do this. I'm just throwing that out there as something to just kind of like, and you're like, why am I having lamb? Um, well, that's a good question, isn't it? That's, a, that's exactly the point. Why am I having lamb? Because Jesus, the lamb of God, has taken away my sins. And I'm remembering that with a meal, just like the Jewish people all those years ago. Mm. I'll get some feedback on Kelly if I'm going to keep this one for tonight or not. Uh, <laughs> in the meantime, in the meantime, let me, let me pray for us all. I really want you to, if you close your eyes, and, and if you've been a Christian for a long time, I want, you to, I want you to think about why do you have confidence about your salvation? Like, not the right answer, but the real answer. Like, do you have confidence based on you and your goodness and your behavior and what you've said yes to and said no to? Do you have, do you have confidence there? And, and if so, I want you to just bring that back to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm... The truth is, it's not me, it's just you. That's why I'm confident on, on the day of my salvation, on, the, on, the, on judgment day. And I'm sorry for thinking that, that I'm kind of earning it a little bit. It's only Jesus. Just kind of lay that back down there before him. And if you want to give your life to Jesus or uh, for the first time and you're like, you know what, I thought I'd been good enough and maybe I don't need a Savior. Or maybe you're like, no, I haven't been good at all, and I need a Savior. Same response. I encourage you to dedicate or rededicate your life to Jesus by praying something like this. God, have mercy on me. Forgive me. I, I believe now. I believe in Jesus. I believe I need Jesus. I need his blood shed on the cross to Cover me so that I can be forgiven and saved. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Jesus, we praise you for raising from the dead. And now fill me with your spirit, God. Fill me with your spirit as I commit my life to you and to living how you want me to live and doing what you want me to do. Help me in Jesus' name. Amen.